0: Hello there and welcome to the second part of this course that is attempting to um, introduce the central themes and ideas of theology. Uh, it's kind of like a paro-theology 101 course. Although uh, I, I was gonna try and make sure it wasn't too technical and then of course I kind of get into philosophy and all of that. So it's not necessarily 101 as an easy, but the idea is that these six parts will kind of offer a trajectory of kind of the theory and the practice of paro theology and to do that i'm using the paro theology coin which has six different elements and each part of the course is on an element of the coin so last week um, i did the um, the idea of the magic trick where i looked at this notion of the sacred object which is this object this thing that we think uh, will make us whole and complete, that we frenetically pursue. And then I looked at the disappearance of that object, which is a form of nihilism, a form of uh, the horrendous realisation that the thing we want more than anything else isn't there, through to the return of the sacred, not as an object that we love, but as a depth dimension in the act of love itself. And this was a broad overview of what I'm attempting to do in theology, of the kind of the cure... Uh, what, it, what it means to live a fulfilled life, a life of struggle, a life of depth, um, a life that is meaningful. Um, and it's connected to this notion of of uh, losing the sacred object, but retaining um, drive, a drive for change. And by the way, something I didn't talk about, but this is why uh paro theology and psychoanalysis are different from other types of cure um in which the desire is to maybe find enjoyment in your world to find a way to be adapted to your world uh, to find a way to unplug from the difficulties of the world because what i was trying to explore a little bit or introduce in part one was the idea that actually it's about finding a vocation, being in the world but not of it, finding a type of struggle in love. I talked a little bit about love as a yearning that is desirable, a yearning that is painful, um, a yearning which has lack, but a lack that, that brings meaning into our lives. So last week was all about outlining those three parts. Today, I'm gonna go even deeper into that subject, so we're gonna take another, another stab at that stuff. Then in the uh, parts three and four, we're going to look at the mechanics of how we undergo this transformation. And then in the final two parts, we're going to look at what does a community of contradiction look like? What does a community based on these ideas? um, Actually, how does it manifest in the world? And how does it change our lives? And how do our lives look in the aftermath of this? So that's what we're going to be doing. So in order to kind of go deeper into the notion of the sacred object, we're gonna be taking uh, the phrase that's around the corner of this coin, which says, the lack of the secret, or the secret of the lack, right? Depending on where your eye falls, you'll either see the lack of the secret or the secret of the lack. And the reason for this is because uh, we start off, I would say, uh, this journey, by experiencing the lack of the secret. We think there's something out there that we can grasp that will kind of like make everything good, that will give us certainty and satisfaction. So we experience at an existential level, the lack of the secret. And then what I want to do is look at how we get from the lack of the secret to this notion of the secret of the lack, in which we discover that this lack is actually constitutive of our experience and then how do we interact with that? So to do that, we're gonna start obviously with the lack of the secret. Um, And I think I'll start with the difference between desire and drive. And this will also hopefully uh, help look at the last part and kind of make sense of that in a different way. Desire is basically um, oriented towards fulfillment desire is oriented towards getting something right we desire something and we either well renounce ourselves to not being able to get it or we work towards it but desire it has an aim and the aim is some sort of object drive um, is aimed at loss itself drive orients itself not around an object that you can grasp but rather around a certain loss of an object and that's unconscious so desire is conscious and drive is unconscious and desire is all we know consciously that is how we are oriented these are two different registers right they're not on the same level i'm going to come back to this again but desire is what we know it is when we want things we pursue things we're driven by things right we're 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 at the level of utilitarian value we 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 kind of like calculate what would bring us more pleasure, what would bring us less pain, and we interact in the world at that, at that level. And for some, that's basically all there is, right? Desire and instinct, right? That's, that's human beings are a form of animal in which we have desires and which we have instincts. But the central kind of uh, insight of Freud around the book uh, Beyond the Pleasure Principle was his discovery of the drive and his theorization of the drive. And the drive can never be conscious. It can never be brought to the level of desire, right? Now we can understand that, that's what we're trying to do here. We're gonna talk about it, we're gonna wrestle with it, but it's it's something that we never directly encounter. And it's a type of prohibition. It's a type of no. So desire is uh, to do with things lost things that we want loss and drive is to do with lack right so now i'm going to just briefly explain the difference between loss and lack loss is where you don't have something that you can get back right so you lose something like a computer and you can gain it back or you feel there's something in the world that you can grasp that will fill the loss lack is an originary loss it's a loss that does not have an object that can fill it. Right? It's a loss that comes first. So I think I talked about original sin last week in terms of originary lack. Right? It's a lack that, um, that, it, that kind of births us into the world. It's our initial experience of the world. Um, if you imagine it, uh, basically imagine a, a, like a metaphor of a baby. And the the father, right? Because there's a phrase called the know of the father that's used in psychoanalysis. And the know of the father is the prohibition that enters the life of the infant. So there's this oneness. I mean, it's a mythology. There's no real oneness for the infant. But there's a kind of experience of of this uh, oneness with the world and with the other, the mother, other generally. And then something has to come into break that relationship to kind of break you into the world as a subject and this is called the know of the father so kind of imagine the know of the father as an injection that is injected into the infant and what's in the needle is lack so the know of the father is the injection of lack into the infant that kind of brings the infant into subjectivity Um, now by the way there's three ways this can happen Um, If the metaphor works, let's see if we can push it, right? The first thing is if if the person puts the needle on the child, but the, the needle doesn't penetrate the skin, so the lack doesn't go into the child, it kind of drips over the child. That's psychosis, where the real is kind of, lack is external to you, not in you. The second way to extend the metaphor is, the needle goes in, but the lack isn't strong enough and so the body resists it and that's perversion and then finally there is the needle goes in the lack is strong enough and that's neurosis right um but each of these is a type of a lack is introduced to the infant that separates you from the world and from yourself because you can start to talk about yourself as another right you look at your brother your sister you look at others you see yourself in them your parents kind of say oh look you're just like your brother you're just like your sister you begin to see yourself externally as an object so you experience yourself as a divided subject so very early on we experience this lack not a loss but a lack and so that means that we are interpenetrated by this uneasy feeling that there's something missing and depending on the, the, the way the lack is injected into you, uh, that manifests in different ways. But let's just take the most common one, which is kind of the neurotic structure, uh, where someone just feels inherently like they question whether they're doing a valuable job, whether they're going out with the right person, what the other person thinks of them. They, they just have this sense of a slight dissatisfaction that is always kind of within the world. Right. And there's a dissatisfaction because you think about it. Desire is right. Grasping stuff. Drive is what um, is always undermining it. Now, just to go back to the part one for a second. Remember, I told the story about Orpheus and Eurydices, right? Think about that in terms of desire and drive. When Orpheus goes into the underworld, tries to get Eurydices back, that's desire. Right, Desire is fueling his uh, descent into the underworld to bring Eurydices back so they can be together. But drive is what undermines that. So at the very last moment when basically he has Eurydices back and all he has to do is exit the underworld with her and not look back. All he has to do is not glance back and he will be with her forever. What does he do? He glances back. That's drive. Drive is oriented at, towards Um, losing something right and as we discussed last week it's the loss of something that makes it desirable sacrifice is connected with uh, value so the more we sacrifice the more valuable something is or the more something is prohibited the more value it can attain this uh, for Lacan is very interesting he connects this with what Immanuel Kant called the categorical imperative right so for Immanuel Kant there is the hypothetical imperative right a hypothetical imperative is simply uh, decisions that we make in a day-to-day life that have utilitarian value right and this is all animals have hypothetical uh, uh, imperatives so you go do I want to have tea or coffee do I want to go out with friends or stay in or do I want to uh, go out and hunt for food today or do I have enough and I don't have to do that right all of these are hypothetical imperatives they're at the level of utilitarianism um and that's completely normal right it's at the level of will to power as well nietzschean will to power where we desire certain things for ourselves it's also the level of cause and effect right of pure determinism but then immanuel kant talks about the categorical imperative and for kant this is key to freedom the, the reason why humans are free is because they experience a categorical imperative. And a categorical imperative is the experience of something that is beyond all calculation, like an act that is beyond pathological self-interest. That's what Kant says. He talks he talk about pathology in terms of self-interest. So you feel a call to do something or not do something regardless of the cost, right? I should do this no matter how painful it is, no matter how destructive it is to me, this is something I should do, or this is something I should never do, no matter how much value I will get selfishly for it, right? Now, maybe we never actually uh, submit ourselves to the categorical imperative, that's not the point. The point is that we experience the categorical imperative. And for Lacan, this is key because the, the categorical imperative is intimately intertwined with the prohibition, with lack, right? Because the lack generates an excessive desire for objects in the world, not just a kind of a reasonable desires or even unreasonable desires, but absolutely transcendental desires. Desires, which is drive, for something in which you will sacrifice everything for, Um, Now, what Lacan does very cleverly here is he says there's two kind of way, two people who talk about this and they're very different, right? There's Kant, Immanuel Kant, who talks about the categorical imperative, which means this ethical call to do something no matter what the cost. And then the Marquis de Sade, who talks about an evil that is, he calls it, he says the, the destructive nature or the destructive reality of nature right we all see the destructive reality of nature but the sad then talks about a destructive act that destroys nature itself and basically what the sad does is he articulates a type of evil that is actually divorced from any utilitarian benefit right we all think of criminals as doing things selfishly so the typical hollywood movie the criminal is doing the crime because they want money they want uh, a revenge, they want something, there is a motive, right? Um, and so in a way, this is why G.K. Chesterton says criminals are conservative, because he says con- criminals don't destroy the very framework of the law. Like they do want to do away with private property. They just want more private property for themselves, right? So they're willing to commit a crime within the system, not a crime against the system itself. Uh, and, and the sad is talking about the latter, a crime against the system itself. Now, Hollywood sometimes kind of creates enemies that are like this. So, the probably the two most obvious ones are the Alien and Aliens, right? Which is this all-consuming, kind of utterly destructive force that does it for no selfish reasons. It's not even like an animal protecting itself. It will destroy itself in order to destroy the other. Oh yeah, then there's the zombie, let's use the zombie as well. A kind of evil force that has no utilitarian dimension to it. It's a kind of a a negative categorical imperative. And then there's um, Christopher Nolan's Joker, right? You have that beautiful line where uh, Alfred is saying to the Batman uh, that when he was younger and he was in special forces somewhere in some African country, uh, they were trying to chase down this kind of overlord his warlord and they tried to bribe people to kind of find out where he was but then what they discovered is this warlord um had no interest in anything selfish he was no, not interested in money he was not interested in these diamonds that they were using to bribe people uh, he was motivated by a type of non-pathological evil And of course, that's the the joker who burns all the money. He's kind of like, people can't work out his motive because in a sense, he has no motive. He even says to Two-Face, do I look like I've got a plan, right? In other words, do I look like I'm motivated by anything, right? I am pure chaos. So the reason why I say that is whenever we start to work out what desire and drive is, we kind of start to work out that why human beings are not purely on the level of hypothetical imperative, which is we're not purely at the level of cause and effect or utilitarianism. We are short circuited or we are decentered by a type of excessive desire that comes from this lack, this loss, this prohibition that says you can't have, which makes you want it. and by the way, it's a prohibition against something you can't have. That's kind of, I mean, maybe we're getting too deep into this, but but in a way, the first desire kind of is, is incestuous for the mother other, right? You want to be one with the other. And then the prohibition comes in to say you can't, right? You can't have that oneness, right? You have to substitute that desire with other desires, right? Um, But it's prohibiting something you can't have because if the prohibition wasn't there, you wouldn't have some powerful unity. You would, you know, have a very profound kind of a very profound autistic experience. Right. So it's a prohibition of something that you can't get. And the prohibition then generates this desire. And there's nothing wrong with it. Like this is part of human development. But it helps us understand why we have this sense of the, the lack of the secret that somehow there's something out there that will fix us. And I think I quoted uh, Shizek in part one when he was paraphrasing Lacan, who said, God has every perfection except one, he doesn't exist, which is what the sacred object is. It has every perfection except one, it doesn't exist. So when you get it, you don't have it, right? Now, um, what we try to do is we try to uh, overwrite lack with loss and we try to overwrite uh, contradiction with opposition. So contradiction and opposition is very briefly defined those as well. Contradiction is the idea of, it's basically just lack. There's a, that's where the hypothetical imperative and the categorical imperative sh- hit, right? They create a disjunction. They don't create like a, uh, a, flu- a free, being who is at peace they actually create an antagonistic anxiety riddled creature so we're anxiety riddled creatures for kierkegaard right which is why we're free anxiety is the evidence of freedom and anxiety is the fact that we are not at one with our world we've been de-centered by the categorical imperative by by something else that is not conscious remember i said these are not two things at two different sides of a of a coin. They're not um, yin and yang. Uh, it's, it's not two somethings, it's something and nothing. It's the thing, us, and then we are decentered. We are ruptured by a crack. Um, that makes, and The example I use uh, is actually of a city, I've often used this, of a city back in Northern Ireland called Londonderry. But it's not just called Londonderry. Some people call it Derry, and some people call it Londonderry. And depending on what you call it, that shows kind of what community you're part of, whether you're a nationalist or a loyalist. So during the troubles, people might ask you to name the city and depending on what you said, you were giving something away of yourself and you could get in trouble. Um, And so sometimes people talked about, uh, on the news it would be talked about as Derry stroke Londonderry. And then there was a radio host who shortened it and just talked about stroke city, right? Stroke city. Well, that is like the unconscious. That's what we're talking about here between desire and drive. It's, there's not two cities, but it's not one city either. It's one city divided against itself. The stroke that makes the city not at one with itself. That's kind of what we are. We're like animals who are in the world going about our business, a hypothetical imperative, desires, the level of desire and instinct. And then lack is injected into us. This lack then generates an excessive desire beyond utilitarian uh, calculations and that's a type of categorical imperative and that causes us to value things so highly that we will even destroy ourselves right so now we kind of we're kind of uh, what would you call us we are disturbed creatures. Right. We are uh Zpanczyk, the, the philosopher, she says that we are the ticks and grimaces of the universe. Right. We are the non-functioning of the universe. Uh, we're the evidence of that non-functioning uh, writ large, the manifestation of the, the dysfunction of the universe materialized. Um, this is all going to make more sense. So I'm just I'm throwing a lot of terms at you, but just remember the term. So desire is conscious and wants something. Drive is unconscious and revolves around not getting. And that not getting generates excessive desire at the conscious level. So consciously now we're not just in a world of things we would like to make our lives better. We are now in a world where there are things which we want in order to feel whole and complete. Um, And why then we're not utilitarian in a simple sense. Then I introduced the notion of loss and lack. So lack is constitutive it's originary the sense of lack loss is kind of at the level of you know not having right but again they're intertwined loss is interpenetrated with lack. and the reason why i'm saying that is then because i introduced this next distinction between opposition and contradiction contradiction is this clash that i've been talking about where we're not at one with the world where we're 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 caught up in this weird Excessive uh, categorical imperative. We feel that in ourselves, and so we're in contradiction with ourselves. We experience ourselves in a type of contradictory way. Again, the more precise way of saying it is: we are the contradiction. It's not that we have contradictions. The contradiction of um, of the of the animal is what produces the subject. So the subject, as in me, Peter Rollins, walking around the world. I am the pro. I am the symptom. Of the contradiction so when you reduce contradiction to opposition opposition is conscious right and it's the conscious feeling that things are getting in the way of what you want so loss is things you want and opposition is what gets in the way of it right and on the other side unconsciously you have uh, lack and you have contradiction so in our daily lives we're always looking for getting rid of oppositions and getting the things that we feel that we've lost. And the problem is, uh, the problem is we want to completely overwrite lack with loss and overwrite contradiction with opposition. In other words, we want to imagine and believe a world where if we just got rid of all of the oppositions, things would be wonderful. And if we just got the things that we feel we've lost, the things that we don't have, that would satisfy us, so if we just could get them, then everything would be great. That's what we're, we're caught up in. And at an extreme, this brings us to a kind of a form of mysticism, right? So there's a form of mysticism in which uh, loss and opposition is pushed into another world. In other words, you say, you know, in this world, I'll never fill that lack and I will never get rid of the oppositions that are inherent to my mind and my being and life. But in in union with the one, in the, the absolute after death, I will finally overcome those, right? So there's a sense in which, you know, this in this life, so that's just basically pushing loss and opposition to an extreme place. But we can also do that by saying, you know, a utopia hundreds of years in the future or heaven whenever we die, but in whichever way we do it, that is, and this is progress in many ways, it's taking our experience of loss and opposition and basically going like, we're just gonna have to live with it for a while. Maybe we have moments of mystical experience where it feels like they dissolve away, but ultimately until the next life or until the utopia, we're gonna have to somehow make do with loss and opposition if we don't feel that then we're we're likely to scapegoat and we're always trying to blame other people and we're always depressed because we can't quite get the thing that we want right so mysticism allows us potentially to become less scapegoaty in our in our activities but hegel calls this the unhappy consciousness He, he sees this as a stage in the development of consciousness and he calls it unhappy consciousness and you can probably see why he calls it that because it basically you're reconciling yourself to loss and to opposition and you're kind of going like oh well it's like a stoic and i can't do anything in this life it'll be you know in the next life it'll be better right and uh, hegel wants to move beyond the unhappy consciousness so this in a nutshell is what i mean by the lack of the secret it is the experience in which loss and opposition predominate and lack and contradiction are overwritten Um, it's the experience that of frantically pursuing something that will fix that will fill those things or renouncing them and going like in this life we will never have them now an example i use i'll use one more example and we'll move on an example I've sometimes used to describe this, and it's a bit inaccurate, and that's why I want to kind of talk about it, why it's inaccurate, but it's good for um, uh, uh, teaching purposes, right? Um, is I say fundamentalism isn't certainty, it's repressed uncertainty. And I use the example of you grow up, you think you're right, that's fine, everybody around you thinks you're right, you're just mimicking everybody else, right? But there's a certain point when you encounter someone who thinks differently, and they're thoughtful, they're intelligent, and they critique what you're saying, or you read a book, and the book critiques you, or you start to ask yourself questions, and those questions start to disturb you. Now, at that point, you can either go, oh, this is interesting, right? It's a bit traumatizing, but it's interesting, I wanna go and see where this where this journey takes me. Or you can close the book or close your ears and go, I, I don't wanna listen. And for Paul Tillich, fundamentalism is not certainty it's repressed uncertainty i.e it kind of comes into being the moment that you refuse to listen to the lack that you're encountering the doubt the unknowing the ambiguity the difference that is starting to make an impact you kind of ignore now that's i think it's accurate it's a good way of describing kind of getting an insight into fundamentalism the only thing i'd like to add to the example is in a way the lack is always already there you're not uh bringing it into being you are recalling it you're recollecting it you're bringing it back to mind now you're not bringing it back to mind like you used to think it and then you forgot but it's like it's there already just in a in a in a a primary repressed way and so when you finally come to, to the point where you're consciously starting to doubt and ask questions and and uh, start to question your worldview. it's a type of recollection of something that's that's been there and within you uh in a maybe a sleeping form let's call it a sleeping form um now then what does it mean uh to move from the lack of the secret to the secret of the lack just making sure i haven't missed anything there yet okay well the movement to the point where you have the secret of the lack is the moment in which, it's not when you become conscious of of uh, lack and contradiction and, and kind of fully confront it. Because again, I think it's important to say we never do. Now, we can, I uh, say intellectually kind of understand the, the structure, but we never confront it. We are, uh, Todd McGowan says this and I like it, like, it, it Nietzsche's will to power is not what some people think it is which is a precursor to Freud's unconscious it's the opposite will to power is the world that we inhabit which is kind of like you know the desire for power for dominance for to get pleasure to to minimize pain right we are wholly in that world we're not half and half right? We're not, that's why it's not two sides of the coin, right? It's like Jordan Peterson has that Jungian notion of the two sides. It's not two sides of a coin. We are fully in will to power. We're fully within utilitarianism. Uh, we're fully in the world, but we're not of it. There's something that destabilizes. And it's better to think of lack interpenetrating loss and contradiction interpenetrating uh, opposition, you don't ever encounter them directly, but you kind of can sensitize yourself to their act- activity, right? So the, and, and what that does is it breaks down scapegoat mechanism. So you will still be in the world where you encounter opposition, including political opposition, people you think are bad, political parties you disagree with, uh, worldviews that you think need to be critiqued, right? You will have that and you will engage in that activity. But not with the idea that if you get rid of that, then on the other side, there is some sort of non-antagonistic pure being, right? It's that, You go, absolutely, I am giving myself over to critique and trying to change people's minds and also trying to learn myself and engaging in the back and forth uh, of of opposition and oppositional thinking. But if you're sensitive to how contradiction lies at the heart of it, then you're not falling foul of utopic thinking either the conservative type that looks back to the golden age or the liberal type that looks forward to a future age, right? You will kind of go right at a, at a historical contingent level. There are things for us to fight about and argue about and wrestle with to make society better, things that we value. But I'm not getting caught up in thinking that one, by getting rid of them, uh, that everything's gonna be great two i've got to understand that the thing that i'm fighting is exactly a product of the um the failure to uh tarry with contradiction and not always you can be the one who's feeling right but often the, the worst types of political activities are often activities that make us think that contradiction is opposition or that misdirect the true problems and the true issues right so um again and with loss it's the same thing it's not that you no longer in some sort of kind of like nihilistic lack of desire no longer want things no you can't get away from that even the want to no longer want is caught up in want right so we can't get we can't get out of the realm of desire right um even to say if you're watching this to escape your desire you're thinking this might help me escape my desire that's a desire to escape desire we can't escape that 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 um field that we inhabit but what we can do is we can become sensitive to how loss is interpenetrated by lack and that the lack is what gives some objects more value than others to us and actually make make life meaningful and it will stop us from the negative dimension of death drive so the point here is not to get rid of drive, or what's called death drive. It's how to rob it of its sting. Now I'm not going to do the theological dimension today. We're going to do that in parts three and four, but you can already potentially hear the theological dimension, right? Robbing death of its sting and uh, the idea of the forgiveness of debt, of the, which basically means the rendering nothing of nothing, because that's what forgiveness is. If a debt, debt is a type of nothingness. It is something that needs to be filled with money. To forgive a debt is not to fill the, the, the lack with money, it's to say that nothingness is nothing. So you, you rob the, the death drive of its, of its negativity. So the secret of the lack also means, and this is very key because people thought I was very much a form of, um, a certain form of mystic. And there's some mystics, I think who get this notion of the, the, the secret of the lack, but the form of mysticism that I reject is epistemological humility. And the idea that uh, we don't have now, because of the oppositions of our limited intellect or the world or whatever, we don't have now, but we will have one day. Now I see in part, then I shall see fully. Right? I see through a glass, ve- a veil darkly, then I shall see face to face. Actually, I wanna talk about that verse. Uh, um, but our common sense interpretation of that verse is, um, the opposition is the, the dark glass, and the loss is what you know, we don't have on the other side of it. One day, one day, we will see through the glass clearly. We shall know. We shall be reconciled. And we shall know as we are fully known. Right? Now, the conservative interpretation of that verse is that we see through a glass darkly until the revelation of christ right as and some say you know the closing of the canon right so now we see fully right so that's the more conservative view is that that with the closed canon and the revelation of the bible we now see clearly what was only dimly seen through creation before and then the liberals will say no we see through a glass darkly today and we always will until the next life right then we will see fully as we are fully known but a paratheological interpretation of that verse would go like this, right? And I, like, let's see if we can say this clearly. It's like, I know in part, and I see in part. And because I know in part, and I see in part, I fantasize that there is something to be fully known and fully seen, right? The very fact that I um, can't see makes me think there's something too. See, just like if you see a safe, a massive safe, you suddenly think there must be something huge behind it. So if you wanna fool people into thinking that you're rich, you don't need to make a lot of money, you just need to buy a big safe, right? It'll, it'll create the illusion, because you, you why would you have a big safe if you didn't have money, right? So I know in part and I see in part, and that generates the, the, the belief that there is something beyond the loss, beyond the opposition. But here's the thing, right? when i fully know i don't fully know what can be fully known i fully know that nothing can be fully known i fully see that there is something about reality that cannot be fully seen right so this is what hegel calls absolute knowledge i'm just going to kind of peel this apart a little bit the secret of the lack is not an epistemological humility. Oh, we don't know everything in the world. Uh, we never will, or one day we might know more and more, but we'll never know everything, right? I'll never know everything about this camera. I'll never know everything about what makes up a, a speaker or a television set or whatever, right? So there's lots of things we don't know. Um, but with the secret of the lack is the idea that, that, It's not just that there's an epistemological humility, there's a a metaphysical lack at the heart of reality. There's something about reality itself that is lacking. So when we fully grasp that, we fully grasp that reality can't be fully grasped because it is incomplete. And remember that verse where it says, I shall know as I am fully known. So what does it mean to be fully known? It means to be known as as someone who is unknowable. It means, it means to fold in the unknowability of the other into what you know, right? Now, on a very, very practical level, you see this in the sciences, right? So I'm gonna, a few examples. Um, the move from, uh, well, the philosophical example is the move from Immanuel Kant to Hegel. So for Kant, he he, he proved basically that you can uh, argue for completely opposite positions in terms of whether there's freedom or fully determinism, whether God exists or God doesn't exist, whether the, the universe can be indivisibly split and split and split, or whether you'll get to um, something that's indivisible. Uh, and also, um, so freedom, necessity, God knows the, oh yes, and whether the universe has a beginning or whether it doesn't, right? And these are called antinomies. And so for Kant he said when we use reason at its purest we we get to these contradictions therefore reason does not give us insight into reality into the real and Hegel came along and he agreed with Kant and the only difference he made was he said but that's exactly why it does give us insight into reality because reality itself is contradictory right and this is the move from Einstein to Bohr in in physics right where Bohr shows that the kind of the wave particle duality is not the result of an inability on our part to see something but it's actually a type of contradiction that is hard baked into the quantum level of reality or take uh, Godel's incompleteness theorem in mathematics mathematics is based on axioms that that are proofs uh, so what Godel tried to do is he tried to uh create an axiom to prove the proofs to kind of totalize mathematics and what he showed is when you do that you fall into contradiction and then the kind of conclusion he made at one stage anyway was well that shows that mathematics doesn't give us insight into reality right it's not the language of the real because it falls into contradiction but of course perhaps the point is that it does give us insight into the real because the real is in contradiction and then darwin of course in biology shows that there is an uh, antagonism within biological reality that gives birth to all sorts of animals and freud there is a um, an antagonism in our consciousness called unconscious that you know creates us as subjects so in all of these examples this is the, for the move from the lack of the secret, which is the idea, say, in science, that, well, there's things we don't know. Of course there's things we don't know. There'll always be things we don't know, right? But to a positive claim, which is, but even then, there is a type of deadlock within reality that means that it's not at one with itself. And that actually explains why there is anything at all, why we exist. And on the same level, we are deadlocked. The human beings are the result of the contradiction between desire and drive, between hypothetical imperative, uh, uh, categorical imperative, uh, between contradiction and opposition. And this all means that there's no getting over it. There's no getting away from it, right? There's no drug that will take away drive entirely uh, without giving you, without throwing you into an, an abyss of your own kind of, uh kind of as a highly autistic kind of psychic experience what you can do is you can rob this of its sting and you can make it productive and in different ways this can be seen as the cure in psychoanalysis this is the cure right In psychoanalysis it's it's about coming to terms with your death drive enjoying what you don't have uh kind of like um Uh, there's one thing Lacan says where he says like the journey of the drive is too long for us. So sometimes where the journey of the drive causes us too much suffering, we're always getting some pleasure out of not getting, but the pleasure is often incredibly painful and destructive. And so a lot of analysis is about shortening the circuit, shortening the circuit of drive so that you still orbit around what you don't have, but in a much more productive way. Again, an example I often use is my own work. When I'm talking about paro-theology, I always feel like I'm not quite nailing it. So I always have to do more courses like this to try to nail it. But every time I do, I feel, I feel like I'm not articulating it quite right. But it's that constant failure that gives me desire and also generates my work and also is productive because now a body of work around paro-theology starts to come into existence. So the repetitive failure is both enjoyable and productive and it it anchors me in the world so in psychoanalysis it's called the cure in politics it's called democracy i mean democracy is the antagonism of society kind of made to work you know so there's the antagonism of all of these different people not overcome but rather brought into something that is productive um there's uh what other ones did i mention oh yeah in um in, in philosophy it's called absolute knowledge in hegel whenever you come to realize the contradiction in reality and and orient yourself to that Uh, i think in christianity it's called salvation and in economics uh, it's a new form of production which could be called socialism but i use that term uh, uh, reservedly because um, i don't necessarily mean socialism in the way that a lot of people talk about it in the popular sense Um, but these are different ways of describing a type of uh coming to terms with this dimension um that underlies us okay so what i've tried to do in this seminar and i think is you know we've, we've kind of had there's a lot in it but is to start with the lack of the secret so at a very simple level it's the sense in which something is missing something isn't there and we need to pursue it at its extreme we get to the point of going we'll never find it And we renounce it and we kind of either uh, kind of nihilistic despair or we put it into another world well we'll we'll get what we've lost and we'll overcome the oppositions in the next life but there's a stage beyond that and it's where we encounter the idea that lack and contradiction is part of reality itself and so therefore you can never get exactly what you want (laughs) but the failure to get it and the revolving around that failure can be what generates a depth in life and i do i avoid the word happiness because it doesn't necessarily do a happy life and happiness is a is a terrible category anyway this is about um finding uh, finding a, a meaning and a depth in your existence and one that um is productive right it produces things um and this the, the movement of paro is exactly that movement from the lack of the secret uh, to the secret of the lack. Now in the next two parts, we're gonna look at how to actually make that journey. For now, I'll just look to see if you've got any questions. Um, oh yeah, Tim says, looking forward to this. I just listened to Todd McGowan's talk on death drive. Yes, he just put one up the other a uh, couple of days ago. Very, very good if anybody's watching this. Todd McGowan has a YouTube channel. He's starting to upload things onto it and the videos are all very, very good. Uh, Kate says, so would an example of desire versus drive be someone who wants a relationship to feel whole and complete, hopeless, romantic, etc. but as soon as they find a potential partner, they sabotage it. Absolutely. I mean, that, that's kind of the story of Orpheus and Eurydice is that, and we see it so much in life, um, is the person who they're looking for the honeymoon relationship and they want it so much that they will sabotage a relationship to keep that dream alive. Because what's more traumatic than never finding the relationship that makes you whole is the idea that that's impossible. And that's the funny thing, we we almost find it's more traumatic to let go of the fantasy than to um, uh, never achieve the fantasy. So people will often sabotage their relationships at the point when they're actually going really well uh, because uh, at some unconscious level, they want to keep their desire alive. I think last week I talked about how instead of thinking about people are jealous because they love, often people love because they're jealous. In other words, they need to have some sort of sense that something's being taken away from them. The other is, is going somewhere else in order to evoke the desire. And so jealousy can be a, a, a frantic attempt to keep desire alive. Uh, oh yes, yeah, so Timu, if I'm saying that right, says, it sounds like the injection of lack is the birth of the ego. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, when I use that example of the child, um, this is like between really the ages of three months and I think it's 18 months, around that that period of time, the child is, um, Begin well that's actually the beginning of the mirror phase that's the beginning of the imaginary they're starting to create images of themselves and then um the symbolic comes in which is language and language is the prohibition so there's the there's kind of like the imaginary phase and then language comes in so the point that language comes in uh language the symbolic is basically um ongoing deferral the easiest way to think about the symbolic i think is a dictionary a dictionary is a series of words that all point to other words you never get to the word that has some substance in itself right the symbolic is constant deferral and the whole dictionary is just if you had a massive dictionary that had every word, and it, it is just ultimately a matrix of deferrals and movements and pointing to other words, other signifiers, but this frenetic pointing to other signifiers creates the signify, creates meaning. Meaning is the epiphenomenon of a continuum, continual deferral of meaning, and so um, the the point of the injection of the of the new, no, which is the prohibition, right, which is in the Bible you shall not eat of that fruit. And in psychoanalysis, you have to be separate from your primary caregiver, right? That no, that lack, if it's injected properly, if it gets inside you, um, it starts your deferral, your constant deferral, your constant not getting what you want. But just like language, the constantly not getting what you want, going from one toy to another, not not having interest in toys for very long, wanting a present so much that you'll die for it. And then as soon as you get it, you're kind of bored of it within a day, right? That, that ongoing movement itself generates desire. And um, uh, so, yeah, so you're right. that The ego is kind of formed in the symbolic. And the symbolic... Uh, I think the symbolic is kind of between the ages of four and 12 is when, it, when the symbolic really takes hold. So in early infancy, it's the imaginary, so it's the child, it's, it's all caught up in images and others that are the same as themselves. So they're not really completely outside of the world. They have transitionary objects, teddy bears that are really their, their parents and all of that stuff. The symbolic from the age of like four to maybe 12, um, where the child learns law, when to sit, when to defecate when to eat right all of these rules that you learn as a child right you're you're integrated into prohibitions and lacks and those prohibitions then generate excessive desires um uh, let see kate says how does the cure compare to the stoic idea that affirming life in spite of desires and anxieties creates joy right how does the cure compare to the stoic idea that affirming life in spite of um, desires and anxieties, creates joy. So funny thing is, right? um, uh, Stoicism's very, very good. Stoicism is, for Hegel, right? For Hegel, stoicism is a stage in the development of consciousness, and it comes right after the master-slave dialectic. So for, for Hegel, what he's doing in his book, Phenomenology of Spirit, is he is charting the development of spirit, of mind. Of consciousness of self-consciousness so basically it almost the book starts off with objects in the world right just like a child starts off not by thinking about itself but by experiencing the outer world and then from the outer world and our frustration with the outer world we start to uh, become conscious and then we become self-conscious and Hegel basically charts this journey and once he gets to self-consciousness he has these Four stages, master-slave dialectic, the stoic, the sceptic, and unhappy consciousness. And master-slave dialectic is basically where uh, we become self-conscious through an antagonistic relationship with other self-consciousnesses. Now, partly he's talking about somewhere way back in history, but I actually think we can even see this in child. And the infant is like the slave of the master-slave dialectic, right? Their parents are stronger. Their parents impose the symbolic law. The child has to obey the symbolic law. There's this, but, but through this, this, um, fight with the parents, they become gradually self-conscious. And for Hegel, that's the point in the master-slave dialectic, it's the slave who actually begins to really generate their self-consciousness against the master. Then um, if that makes sense, he says the next stage after Master's Day of Dialectic is the Stoic. Because what does the Stoic do? Well, the Stoic is someone who then, they lose the battle, but they create internal freedom within themselves. So although externally they're still like enslaved to the world and to problems and to maybe actually literal slavery, they can carve out freedom internally within their mind. Um, and that I think is what children do. Whenever children between the ages of four and twelve, they're having to obey to the they're having to obey the symbolic other. They're having to obey these prohibitions. But what they can do is they can create an internal um, space of freedom, fantasy. Start to think about all this stuff. So they're freed in their minds. Um, so I think children are all kind of stoics. Uh, and then Hegel then says from stoicism grew skepticism, and I think skepticism is where. You have to make the links, the jumps. But skepticism is where the next stage is you then start to question everything and all the structures of the world. Um, and so maybe you could say an adolescent is a skeptic, right? They start to question the whole wor- world of the of their parents who are the masters, right? They then start to critique. And then finally you get into, not finally, then you get into unhappy consciousness. And unhappy consciousness is when you... Um, you then, like, like the, the, the adolescent who's a bit older, who's very depressing and the, their goth music, right? They, they are imagining and fantasizing a better world without opposition and without loss that they can't have. And that is just before you then break into, um, hopefully, the, the move towards absolute knowledge, which is what I'm talking about. So in that frame, stoicism is actually is very important and it's a very it's a place where you cultivate internal freedom in relation to um, your conditions but uh, for hegel i think he's right is that it's an earlier stage and it's not quite uh, absolute knowledge it's not the place where you actually embrace and positivize and take joy in contradiction and in lack where you find a way of not re- renouncing and kind of like a of removing yourself from that world but rather from kind of like embracing it so that that's kind of hegel's kind of reading like in a nutshell but i i kind of i'm very influenced by that so i don't know if that helps Uh, paprika i know you will go into this more in future but are meaning and depth the same goal then um it's current not future like heaven for example meaning is something i'm struggling to find at all if i'm honest okay right yeah, I mean, John Caputo said it beautifully when he talked about, he said, listen, there may not be any meaning of life, but there is meaning in life. And I like that phraseology because we like, you know, there might be meaning of life and we can talk about that. And, and that's, in, that's interesting. But where we fall on that is irrelevant. What's more important is finding meaning in life. And as you're putting your finger on, it's like, it's so hard for us. I mean, my goodness. I. I honestly think that most of the problems we see in modern society and in previous societies but talk about the society we're in is a lack of meaning, is alienation, a feeling of being alienated, a feeling of loss and a feeling of opposition. Now, lack and contradiction are there but but we're just to loss and opposition so we're constantly thinking that, you know, if only we had something or got rid of something then life would be meaningful. And so we live in an age of anxiety, an age of alienation, and an age of meaninglessness. I mean, Paul Tillich talked about the current era. Now he died, you know, 50, 60, 80 years ago, whatever it is. But in the, he talked about the late, the mid twentieth century, um, the nineteenth and twentieth century as the as the age of meaninglessness. Right? He talked about a previous age as being the age in which death was what caused anxiety, because death was all around you and. You know, so if you can imagine everyone dying and you lost kids all the time. And so death was always there. And then he talked about an era where guilt was the predominant form of anxiety, uh, where people felt that they were not living up to something. This is the age of Luther, where Luther experiences profound guilt and then discovers grace. And he says that Tillich says today's anxiety is around lack of meaning, that, that life feels robbed of meaning. And um, actually Tillich's book, The Courage to Be, is a book that attempts to grind meaning, not to basically take, to take incredibly, absolutely seriously the, the, the loss of meaning, to take it absolutely seriously, and then discover meaning through that very path of, of the loss of meaning. So that's a good book, Courage to Be. It's not an easy book at times, so um, I don't know if it would help that much, but I think how you're feeling is the feeling of the age, you know, it's the feeling of the age. And so you're you're asking, um, oh yeah, about about how to find depth and meaning. Are, are they the same thing? That was one thing you said, and I, I'm kind of using them interchangeably. Like if you experience a depth dimension to life, uh, that's that you're you'll you're experiencing a type of meaning within life. Even if you don't believe life is meaningful, you can't help but experience life as meaningful. And yeah, so everything about what I'm saying is about trying to help answer the problem that you have, and that most of it, so many of us have um it won't obviously be answered in this course because a course doesn't give you the answer but this course might help you understand why you feel that way and it might also give you pointers about how to overcome that what to look out for what kind of practices um might help you so yeah um i hear you all right listen thank you so much for listening in Um i, I uh, we covered a lot so I hope it kind of made sense and uh, I'll talk to you for part three. Bye bye.